Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times, and you're listening to What the Dev, our podcast on all things software development. It's an honor to have one of the real luminaries in the software development industry with us today. I'm talking about Kent Beck, uh, who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and do one anyway. Uh, Kent is the creator of Extreme Programming. He was one of the original uh, group who created the Agile Manifesto, and his life's work has been to improve the practice of software development. And that only scratches the surface. So Kent, welcome to What the Dev. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. Yes, I appreciate it. Uh, as I reminded you uh, just a, a moment ago, uh, we had been doing podcasts for years with uh, SD Times, and you were uh, one, of, uh, one of our first uh, people who joined us on those, and we certainly appreciate that. And it is indeed great to have you back. So, uh, yeah, so I understand you recently joined a company called Gusto. Uh, they're like a payroll and HR company, right? So why did you join? What was the appeal there? Correct. So I had been at Facebook for seven years, and then I had a year of fun employment, and I realized that I, I missed the sense of belonging and purpose and just the structure to the days and the weeks that I got. Um, and I also missed having uh, long relationships with, uh, with engineers. So if I would go in and give a talk someplace, I wouldn't necessarily see those people again. And I, I enjoy um, having, uh, uh, like wa watching the growth and development of somebody play out over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's certainly great. Plus, plus it turns out that uh, payroll benefits in HR is uh, kind of a utility. It's a great business. And I'm very happy to be in a business that's helping people who are helping people. Mm -hmm. You perform an actual useful service, taking all this complexity that comes from paying people and providing them with benefits and simplifying that. That's a that's an enormously valuable service and people will pay you for it. Is there anything that they're doing um, that... Uh uh, is different from some of the other companies that are out there already. What is their, uh, you know, what is their angle? Uh, the, the angle is it's a delightful uh, experience for employers and employees. So, for, for example, you get a, an email on payday, and it'll say, uh, you know, you got paid uh, this many thousands of dollars, and that's enough to buy you four hundred bottles of Sriracha. <laughs> a little bit of pizzazz to the company, and uh, Gusto is the place I walk around, and people say, "Oh, my husband gets paid through Gusto, and we love it." And that feels really good. Yeah, that's uh, that is great. So, uh, from the uh, engineering side of things, I mean, how many uh, how many developers do they have working there? It's not 10 people and it's not thousands. Right. Uh, uh, it's in between and growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. oh, that's great. So I know that one of your missions uh, these days is talking about uh, clean code and how people can clean up code. And I'm wondering why you think that's so important. And, um, and I know that you have a method about that. So maybe we can get into that a little bit as well. Yeah. So the first thing I'd like to say is that I, I don't really like this clean Clean, clean as a word applied to code. Uh, I use the word tidy, uh, kind of copying a bit from the Marie Kondo, but uh, also 
hey, things, you know, when you're, when you're doing work, things get messy and there's no shame in that. Uh, but you have to tidy up. So I talk about uh, tidying code. And I'm, in fact, working on a book called The Tidy First Question Mark about this moment lots of uh, every developer faces every day. I'm about to make a change to some code. The code's a little bit messy. Should I tidy it first? Should I tidy it afterwards? Should I just not worry about it and make the change to the messy code and leave it for the next person, which might be me? And that's a genuine dilemma. Sometimes each of those answers is correct. Um, but the, the, what, what I found interesting once I started digging into it is, is one, all of the it depends uh, are let you talk about all the issues that arise in, in software development. Um, Two, it's uh, basically a people problem. It's not a technical problem. So you can know all the refactorings in the world and not do a good job of software design if you ne neglect the relationships that are involved. Mm -hmm. And then uh, lastly, even though you, when you say something like tidying, it sounds kind of like a minimization, small changes adding up, compounding over time can result in, in large effects. So it's not that, I, I think the, the, the best bias for a focus for software design is tidying up small things and then that will reveal the next thing that needs to be tidy and the next thing to be tidied, as opposed to making some heroic, okay, we're gonna throw everything away and start over from scratch. I, there are times when that's the right thing to do, but they're vanishingly small compared to the times when, yeah, you, this is messy. Let's clean this up before, or let's, let's rather tidy this up before we uh, we make it even messier. Mm -hmm. Is your question? Well, it certainly, uh, certainly is a start. So when you talk about uh, small changes and, and uh, you know, separating code into small methods and things like that, is that um, a nod to the new architectures uh, about you know microservices and containers, or is this still a monolithic kind of approach? I think I, tidying works at all scales. Um, I think there are. Uh, I, I have trouble with uh, uh, microservices, especially taken to extremes. And there, it's, it's a people problem. It's not a technical problem. So if you have a company and the only way you can get a good performance review is if you can point to a service that you own and maintain and make it 4% more efficient and 3% uh, more reliable. If, if, if that's the context in which you develop, you're going to have a service per developer whether that's the right thing to do or not. And the problem with tiny little services is the complexity doesn't go away. It goes into the relationships between the services. Right. And people are uh, incentivized to look at the service itself and not its relationships to other services. Then you've got a huge gap uh, where n nobody has explicit incentive to actually work on the thing that's most important. And I think, so we can talk about how big services should be and how many you should have and blah, but Really, this is a people issue. This is not primarily a technical issue. And that was the big surprise. When I sat down to write this book, first line I wrote is, 
Uh, software design is an exercise in human relationships. And I'm like, no, 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 that cannot be right. That just kind of spilled out of me. I should erase this. And I thought, no, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that is the, that is the essence, that this is the people who are affected by the decisions you make as a software designer and your relationship with them completely gate your ability to create value in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a crazy notion. We were at the, uh, there was a DevOps uh, uh, conference that we went to uh, last month, in fact, and everyone was talking about the human factor that seemed to be uh, an overriding an overriding theme that they wanted people to be able to work together and people to collaborate. And that was almost as important, if not more so, than uh, what they were working on, was how they were working on it. Well, you, you have to be able to do both. If you make mistakes as a programmer, the program's going to faithfully execute them. So you have to be able to write systems that that work but you also have to do it in this environment where there's there's relationships from uh i call them waiters and changers so the waiters are the people who want the behavior of the system to change but they can't make those changes themselves and the changers are the people who can actually change stuff and waiters and changers have a a fraught relationship often uh, because the waiters are twiddling their thumbs. Like, I want this new button, and it's not there yet, and the faster it's there, the better. And the changers know, well, if all you ever do is shovel new behavior into the system, you're going to end up with something that's a mess that you can't change and you can't operate. Mm-hmm. Structural uh, improvements are a thing that programmers need to do. But that sets up this, this uh, incentive clash where the waiters don't want to wait and changers know that sometimes doing things the quickest way is not the right way. Mm-hmm. How do you resolve that? And then there's also sets of, of uh, relationships within teams where I want to make a design change to code that you know really well. Well, that's going to make your job harder. So you're resentful and rightly so like I'm making your job harder. So I need to pay, as a designer, I need to pay attention to those relationships too. Right. You know, that's interesting. That's one of the things that they talk about in uh, value stream management, uh, which is obviously a new DevOps trend, somewhat new. Uh, Eliminating wait times, reducing wait times. But how realistic is it to have everybody working all the time? I mean, it it just seems not realistic that there are are never going to be periods where people are waiting for somebody else to do something so they can complete a task. Yeah, absolutely. And anytime somebody talks about maximizing instead of optimizing, you know that there's a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> um, there's, but if, uh, so I've been doing value stream mapping as talked about in the lean manufacturing world, mm-hmm. applying that to software development for 20 plus years. And what's astonishing is every time you do it, you realize, oh, you know, we, we're not getting d- enough done. We feel like we should be programming faster, but we're actually spending 96% of our time twiddling our thumbs, mm-hmm. waiting for something else to, somebody else to do something. And the reason it got that way is somebody else was trying to optimize and they thought, well, we'll we'll uh, split this job between these two people so it can be more efficient. But then I have to put a a queue of of work in front of one of the people and then waiting on the queue and then 
and you get to these really ridiculous situations. So what I would say to you, David, is, is it's, it's not a question of getting to 100%. It's a question of getting above 10. <laughs> wow. It's quite a difference. But uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, realistic. I would love to have that problem. Right. That, that everybody was, was actually being too productive. But really, I mean, in every system, and this is um, uh, the Thompson equation talks about wait time and queue length and uh, utilization. If as the utilization of some resource approaches 100%, the wait time in the queue in front of that resource approaches infinity. Ooh. You don't ever want to get there, but going from from 10% to 50% would be fantastic. Right. So uh, one of the things I know that you uh, talk about as well is um, uh, running tests with every change to the software. Now, is that really an agile practice? Does that uh, tend to create bottlenecks at that point? Or is the ultimate goal just to make sure that it's right and it's good quality and the time is not the most critical thing? Well, you'd like to be able to predict whether a change to the behavior of the system is going to cause problems before it actually causes problems. Right. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. If you can and you can do it cheaply enough, then it makes sense to to make that prediction. Back in the early days, I would submit a deck of cards and I would wait hours or sometimes overnight to see what happened. Right. And then... We collectively spent enormous resources on systems like Smalltalk or like Ruby or Python that, that allowed you to get instantaneous feedback when you wanted to make a change. And, and that changed everything. And now I'm talking to people who say, oh, my, my build chain takes an hour to run. And I'm just thinking... How did we sell our birthright? Like, was this mess of pottage really worth it? It just seems insane that, that as programmers, we're willing to accept long feedback cycles that have to take place multiple times a day. Like, that doesn't have to be true. And yet somehow, having, having uh, achieved rapid feedback at great cost, we just threw it away. And I don't understand it because I can't, I can't think if it takes me 10 minutes to run tests. I, I need, I would like my feedback to happen in under a second. And somehow that just seems like a alien, like I'm speaking Klingon. And I don't get it. I just don't get it. Well, so, uh, so let me uh, move on to a different topic here. I know that you were one of, as I mentioned, one of the original uh, signers of the uh, Agile Manifesto. Some... Uh, I'm David. I am the first signer of the Agile Manifesto. Excuse me, uh, John Hancock. So there you go. No, there you go. All right. Um, so I was just curious to know what your thoughts are on the current state of Agile development. I know we're talking about organizations looking to scale Agile into other departments, to make uh, marketing more agile, sales more agile, all these kinds of things. And we talked about value stream a little bit. Uh, Could you have seen these things growing out from the original ideas? And do you think they're 
relevant in, in, in the world today. And, and just kind of I'd like to get your thoughts on, on where you see Agile today. So I think there are some basic principles that are, are still extremely valuable and that go far beyond the, the practice of software development. Like short feedback loops, direct connection with customers, and a strong social bond among the people who are doing the work. It, it, those principles make sense whether you're talking about uh, a sports team or marketing or sales or piloting an airplane or writing programs. What I think has happened, and this is something that I was afraid of when, when we picked that word agile, I said that, no, this is a terrible trademark because it's completely indefensible. Nobody doesn't want to be agile. Right. If, if we'd been smart, we would have called it stinky programming. <laughs> and then the only people are going to say, yeah, I'm a stinky programmer, are people who really bought and paid for it. And everybody who wanted something that they wanted to keep doing whatever it was that they were doing and pretend like things were changing, those people would never take up the trademark. So there's, there's, a, the, there's the principles, which I still firmly believe in, and I'm applying them today uh, here in the Denver office uh, of Gusto. And then there's all of the agile as a means of oppression. You know, I, I was at a conference and I had somebody walk up to me and say, hey, you know what? We just want to get on with writing our program with our customers. Um, agile, agile doesn't do that. Well, like, how, how can we possibly achieve that? And I literally wanted to break down crime. <laughs> I had to hold back tears because that's exactly what we were trying to achieve originally. Is, is there's a bunch of ceremony that meets somebody's needs someplace, but that violates those principles of direct connection, short feedback cycles, and uh, a strong social bond. Right. And th that are completely counter to those principles. And here's somebody saying, I... Uh, I know, I can't, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm still upset about it and I can't, I'm upset enough I can't even come up with a good analogy, which proves just how upset I am. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. But I know when it, when, uh, when the manifesto came out, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of argument about people like, it's too prescriptive or it's not prescriptive enough. It's a little vague and people were like, well, am I doing Agile? Am, am I Agile? Am I doing Agile? If I'm doing three of the things, but not two of that, does that still count? And I think, I think the world's kind of gotten over that right now, quite frankly. I think people have adopted whatever bits and pieces of it that they want, and whether or not it's called Agile, whatever, if they're achieving the goals, uh, then, then I guess that means they're Agile, right? I mean, maybe that's the problem with the term. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I think there's a severe lack of uh, idealism in this. Just like the the case of the long build cycles that I was talking about earlier, people just aren't idealistic enough to say, hey, this is not okay. Um, uh, 
for us to make a decision and that six months later is going to profoundly affect somebody's life, but I will have moved on. So I don't even have any feedback about whether that decision was a good one or not. That just, that's can't, that just can't be right. It's comfortable. It's reassuring for a moment, but it's better to be dealing with reality. Absolutely. That's for sure. Well, listen, Ken, I'm afraid that we're just about out of time for this uh, edition of What the Dev. Uh, certainly want to thank you for jumping on here and, and, and joining us on this, and hopefully we can uh, have you back on uh, in the not-too-distant future. But uh, once again, thanks for your, your comments and your thoughts, and always a pleasure speaking with you. I hope so. Good to talk to you again, David. Take Appreciate care. It. Okay, this has been What the Dev. I'm Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times. So long.